After last Sunday's worship, my dear wife, Jamie, asked me rhetorical questions. Do you have to always stick to your scheduled sermon topic? Don't you think people now needed a message of God's comfort in this critical time of a pandemic? My immediate reaction was, Pastor Jamie, do you want to preach in my place? That's not what I told her, but I prayerfully decided to respond in two ways. First off, I want to share some light reflections about our crisis. Uh, Jewish people know this better than anybody. They use a humor in times of a crisis as a healing medicine. So just like David Letterman's top 10 list, I'm going to share weekly top three reflections on the blessings in disguise brought by coronavirus. For this week, number one, no cars and no air pollution. Coronavirus might end a global warming crisis, one crisis for another. Number two, online class. I don't have to get up early for school. And number three is my favorite. No need to go out, no need to take shower. If you want to share your reflections on the blessings of a coronavirus, please email them to me and we'll, we'll share laughter together. For the second response, I'm sticking to my scheduled sermon series on discipleship because discipleship means following Christ. Nothing is more glorious and empowering than following Christ. In life, we all imitate somebody or pursue something in order to make a successful or meaningful lifestyle. I'm totally sold out on the idea that following Jesus is the best investment and commitment one can make in life. When you follow Jesus, Jesus will never fail to lead you and bless you. I experienced that many times in my life and witnessed it much the same truth in lives of many faithful Christians. So I want us to be uh, find uh, comfort and confidence, not in the circumstantial messages that soon this crisis will be over or at the worst we'll go to heaven. I want us to have a comfort in Christ who calls us today to follow him and find his care and commitment for us. Today's story of Jesus' calling gives, gives us once again the profound hope and the clear, profound hope. Oops, sorry. sorry, I'm recording this and I want to make sure that I'm being recorded. And uh, oh, why is this stopped? Okay, so be may. Today's story of so Luke 9, uh, Luke chapter 9, 51 to 62 we will learn that Jesus' discipleship is a supreme calling. Supreme calling means it requires our unmust attention and urgent response, just like we all pay undivided attention to coronavirus. Supreme calling means the only way to follow Jesus is totally, totally. Following Jesus means total commitment because it's a supreme calling. So let me read the story, uh, passage today. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Literally, he set his face toward Jerusalem. 
and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have a dance and birds have a nest, but Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9 is a serious chapter for discipleship. Here Jesus was marching to Jerusalem for the last time. Twice Jesus announced that to his disciples that he, he will be rejected and will die in Jerusalem. Verse uh, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed. On the third day, he be raised. He says the same thing in verse 44. And then verse 23, Jesus spelled out clearly what kind of commitment he is expecting from his disciples. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Here we encounter two men who volunteer to be Jesus' followers and the one whom Jesus calls uh, to follow him. We don't know whether these men, uh, how these men uh, responded, but Luke does not focus on their response. Why? Because Luke wants us to apply Jesus' words to our own heart. So question is, Am I following Jesus totally or just casually? As someone observed, there's a difference between interest and commitment. When you are interested in doing something, you do it only when circumstances permit. But when you are committed to do something, you accept no excuse, only the result. These three encounters with Jesus and would-be disciples reveal three important facts about our Lord and his supreme calling. Here I find the reasons why we need to follow Jesus totally, because he is the Lord of our life, and he deserves our undivided attention. So three things we will find about Jesus, who gave us supreme calling. The first one is that Jesus is being an honest caller. The first volunteer, if you look at the uh, verse, 50, uh, verse 58, was a perfect on the paper. I'll follow you wherever you go. We could almost sense his excitement and enthusiasm. But Jesus' rather somber reply shows that he could be a bit impulsive and emotional. By the way, when and where did he make his commitment? Uh, verse 57 said they were walking along the road. He probably saw all the commotion surrounding Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. At the time, many people thought that Jesus would usher the Davidic Messianic kingdom 
in Jerusalem. And also on the way, many people were healed, and each healing added more excitement. As Jesus passed each town, the crowd became bigger and louder. In this messianic euphoria, I think this man made a commitment to Jesus. Although it was a total commitment, it was not thought through. The man has not thought through carefully what following Jesus would entail. So Jesus spelled out for him up front the fact that following Jesus would, uh, would mean giving up many of our personal comforts that he enjoyed or took for granted. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have a nest, but son of man, son of man has no place to lay his head. Here Jesus contrasted his homelessness and discomfort to foxes and birds. While even wild animals have their shelters, son of man has no shelter of his own. That was true. In his life, our Lord Jesus did not own much let alone his own house. He constantly traveled and was sustained by the hospitality of others. When he came to his Galilean headquarter, which was a Capernaum, he stayed in Peter's house. And whenever he visited Jerusalem, Jesus stayed in Bethany, home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Our Lord had no material possession of his own. Some New Testament scholars think that Jesus mentioned foxes intentionally because he was referring to King Herod. If you look at the Luke chapter 13, verse 31, At the time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, Go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. Here Jesus called Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, Fox. Fox is known for being sly and cunning, just like a Herod's family. Fox is also an unclean animal in Mosaic law, just like a Herod and his family were Edomite. Jesus used the feminine noun of a fox, alupex, to inflate, to accentuate the, uh, the insult. While Herod, the earthly king, enjoyed several palaces, the king of kings had no place to rest. And are you willing to let go of your comfort to follow me? When I prepared this message, I was pondering this verse at my library in my comfortable home, Sipping a freshly brewed coffee, just like now. Does Jesus mean that to follow him, we must sell our homes and deny ourselves all comforts in life and become itinerant jungle missionary? If so, very few would qualify. Even many missionaries have a comfortable homes to live in. I think Jesus was pointing out what he already said in uh, chapter 9, verse 23. To follow him requires a life of self-denial, not of self-indulgence. I like the uh, old British Anglican bishop named uh, J.C. Riley. J.C. Riley explained, Jesus would no man enlisted on false pretenses. 
He would have it distinctly understood there is a battle to be fought, a race to be run, a work to be done, and many hard things to be endured. If we propose to follow him, salvation he is ready to bestow without money and without price. Grace, by the way, glory in the end, shall be given to every sinner who comes to him. But he would not have us ignorant that we shall have deadly enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that many will hate us and slander us and persecute us if we become his faithful disciples. He does not wish to discourage us, but does wish to, does wish us to know the truth. I like the uh, Riley's first statement. Jesus would have uh, no man enlisted on false pretenses. False pretenses. Our Lord is honest caller. Honest caller. That's the first truth about the supreme calling. You know, once I uh, read a story about a pastor who joined the Coast Guard uh, Reserves because his recruiter was not exactly honest. Honesty got in the way of a recruitment quota. The recruiter learned that, uh, the pastor said, recruiter uh, learned that he liked to read. So the recruiter told the pastor that there was a library on the base. But he didn't tell the pastor that no recruiter go there until he earned the privilege. And that no one could possibly earn the privilege before six weeks in boot camp. And then it would be, the privilege is none other than one hour a week. Another recruiter became a laughing stock of the base when he showed up for the boot camp with a fishing pole and the water skis. Because the recruiter had told him the base was on island and he could fish and water ski there. Well, person might be do that, but uh, if you're a recruiter, that's a total impossibility. Jesus wasn't dishonest recruiter. He wanted us to know upfront that he is enlisting us in warfare against the powers of darkness and that warfare is often difficult. If you look at for program where our personal comfort is a paramount, we should look out, look elsewhere. Following Jesus must be more important than our personal comfort. And, on, and I have to say this, anything worth doing is worth our discomfort. Someone said, whatever is worth living for is worth dying for. So are we following Christ totally or casually? Are you interested in following Jesus or committed to following Jesus? You know, once I saw this uh, uh, cartoon in the uh, leadership magazine, and then cartoon says, a cartoon showed a church building with a large billboard in front that proclaimed the light church, 24% fuel commitment, home of 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermon, 45-minute worship service. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just the three spiritual law. Do you remember four spiritual law I talked about a while ago? And they have an 800 years millennium. Everything you want in a church and less. Sadly, there is a more truth than fiction in the cartoon. Actually, back in Waco, uh, nearby our house in I-35, I every time I went to the church, I saw this church on the 
next to I-35, the, the big banner on the side of the church, which said 45 minutes of a service, Sunday worship service. That was a, that's the only thing they said about that church. 45 minutes of a worship. You know, many churches are lowering the commitment level to attract attendees. You know, average Sunday worship of a mega churches that I visited in Dallas was one hour. They intentionally make the church convenient and minimal to produce repeat customers. Very good business. Gallup poll says that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. Majority of a prophet who profess Christianity do not know basic Christian teachings and do not act differently because of their Christian identity. As a Lutheran pastor puts it, 90% of our parishes across the country requires less commitment than local Kiwanis club. Forrest, I want to be clear. Forrest wants to make everyone not repeat customers or churchgoers, but radical followers of Christ. Our vision of the church is a biblically functioning community, not culturally marketed religious product. We want people to learn the profound truth of the gospel love in our Good Shepherd College, class like Cornerstone, Livingston, John Discipleship, Experiencing God, and so forth. And also we want people to practice and experience such love in our house church. That's what we are going. Now, let me go to the second man. The second man thought the following Jesus was important, but not more important family obligation. When Jesus said, follow me, he replied, first, let me go and bury my father. Commentators differ over whether this man's father has just died, whether he was near death, or whether he had a few years to go. I incline toward either of the last two views. Since if his father has just died, he probably wouldn't be tagging along after, Je after Jesus at the moment. The Bible teaches, uh, teaches that we should care for our elderly parents. The fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. That is a very important. And Paul stated that, that if we don't take care of our own families, we are worse than unbelievers. And actually, we have denied the faith according to 1 Timothy 5.8. Certainly, Jesus was not negating Ten Commandments. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. But if our commitment to family is greater than our commitment to Jesus and his kingdom, we got it wrong. Jesus replied, allow the dead to bury their own dead. It means that those who are spiritually dead tend to such matters. Then he adds, but as for you, Go and proclaim elsewhere the kingdom of God. You know, in our days, there has been resurgence of uh, emphasis on the family in evangelical circles. So we have a, a ministry called the Focus on the Family. You know, seriously, the name is wrong. It's not Focus on the Family. Focus should be on God. And uh, much of this emphasis is a needed corrective to corrective to old, you know, old uh, Christian. Practice, because many old Christians, uh, old, uh, uh, olden days, a Christian thought sacrificing family is a cost of a discipleship. So many missionaries, they sent their children to uh, missionary schools in, in the formative ages. 
So even Hudson Taylor, the famous uh, missionary in China, he sent his children back to England for their education, rather than keeping them in, uh, with them in, in China. They thought that was a cost of discipleship. I must say that it is a gross misunderstanding of God's will in the Bible. In the Bible, family and ministry, church and home, always go together. Now, having said that, it is also possible to be sinfully selfish about the family. Where we wrongfully exalt the family about God's kingdom purposes. And I heard that uh, I, I have heard of Christian families who do not get involved in serving the Lord because it would interfere their parenting program or family activities. Some even stay away from church because they need a family day together. This teaches the children that family is more important than God and His work in this world. That is uh, close to idolatry. Now, I like to quote the uh, uh, Fred, uh, 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 biblical commentator named uh, uh, Credox on this. It's, and they listen to me carefully. Radicality of Jesus' words lies in his claim to priority over the best, not the worst, of a human relationship. Jesus never tells us to choose him over the devil, but choose him over the family. And the remarkable thing is that those who have done so have been freed from possessions and worship of a family, have found the distance necessary to love them. I want to say very clearly, Jesus, once, when Jesus later said in the Luke chapter 14, 23, if anyone comes to me and does not his father and mother and wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, Jesus was not telling that completely abandon and forsake your family. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Actually, Jesus is telling us how to love our family. You know, best way to love our family is to following God first and encouraging our family to follow God. Let me illustrate this. I remember my first flight with Jamie and Mariel after, I, uh, after becoming a dad. For the first time, I really thought about the flight attendant's instruction about parents placing the oxygen mask on themselves first and then on their children. They know that parents who are struggling to breathe cannot adequately care for their children. There is an appropriate priority that will give both parents and children the best chance of a survival. So, unless I give my priority to Jesus and his call first, I cannot adequately care for my family and my children. Trying to care for my children first instinctively is a gross Christian parental mistake. If you, it's like this, if somebody said that a, you would hate anyone who said in the case of an emergency in the airplane, you put them oxygen mask first to their children. Now that you know the full truth, you said, that is not the way. You will probably, you know, don't do that. That's what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is calling us that you don't love your family above God, but you love God first 
and let God, with God, you love your family. Christian parenting, I must, you know, I want to say very clearly, Christian parenting is a co-parenting with God. Let me repeat, Christian parenting is a co-parenting your children with God. Yet many Christians, they act like a single parenting. It's not I'm physical single parenting I'm talking about. Any Christian parent, you know, family, no matter the size of family or in whatever the, the Christian you know, pedigree of their family, if you put your family or children first, you are doing a great disservice to your children. You know, in this story, these two people, last two people, they both say something very contradictory. They say, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me do something else first. And that's a, you cannot use the Lord and then let me do this thing first. If Jesus is the Lord, you trust him and you follow him. Jesus loves our family, our children, more than we can ever love them. So we raise our family, our children, in Jesus' way. Let me move on to the third scholar. Also, second point is that Jesus is a higher scholar. Jesus is not only an you know, honest scholar, Jesus is a higher scholar. The third point. Third man volunteers to follow Jesus but with a stipulation that he first be allowed to go home and say goodbye to everyone. He thought that following Jesus was important, but not important enough to let go of his old relationship and ways. And Jesus could tell the man's heart was divided. And Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' reply, he used two biblical stories in combination. One is a story of a lost wife, and the other one is a story of Elijah and Elisha. In Genesis 19, Lot's wife, do you remember when God sent angels to destroy, punish, judge, and punish the Sodom and Gomorrah? And God told the Lord and his family not to look back, but just to run and hide themselves. And Lot's wife did not obey the warning of angel of the Lord not to look back when God punished the Sodom and Gomorrah, she couldn't cut off her attachment to the sinful city so that her eyes followed her lingering heart. In a way, she loved what God hates. She became a pillar of a stone. Like a lost wife, the third disciple couldn't quite cut the ties with his old life. He wanted to keep the door open so in case things don't work out, he could always go back. And that's why Jesus used the story. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is, is fit for the kingdom of God. That means his followers must totally focus on his purpose. You know, it's like a, a groom or a bride who is about to go to the wedding but still keeps uh, the pictures of an old boyfriend or ex-boyfriend and girlfriend. And from time to time, just look at it. No man and woman deserve such a, a double-minded uh, spouse. You know, one time, Jamie found something interesting in one of my many, many books. 
she found a picture of a, a young woman. I have no idea. And it happened to be one of the very few blind dates that my church people set up. And I, yeah, I went, I, I, I went down to Los Angeles and meet her, but after that, I forgot. And then, you know, how can, I cannot destroy somebody's, uh, you know, a picture. So I just put it in my books. I forgot about that. And somehow, my wife, who is not a major book lover, she checked, went through my library, and then she found that picture and said, who is this? And I said, I don't know. But imagine, if I intentionally kept the picture, that's a different story. That is a gross. That is a really, really disgusting. I'm still trying to convince Jamie that uh, that was an accident. Now, Jesus, second commitment, to, uh, second story that Jesus bring it out is a story of uh, Elijah. And that's where he used the expression of a plowing in the field. So let me read 1 Kings 19, verse 19 to 21. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shabbat. He was plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen. That means Elisha was from a very wealthy family. And he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. In this story, Elijah gave Elisha permission to say goodbye. But look today's story. Jesus didn't. Why? How come? Let me tell you very clearly here. Jesus is telling everyone, I expect you more than Elijah asked of Elisha. I expect more and demand more than any teacher, any, any master asked you. Here, Jesus was claiming his authority and importance higher than the prophet of all prophet Elijah, the representative of all prophets in the Old Testament. Now, who is a greater than all prophets? Only God. Only God is uh, greater than all prophets. And the third point is that uh, Jesus is a holy caller. Because he is an incarnate son of God, the creator of the universe and everything and everyone. Who owns, uh, yeah. Now, why was uh, Jesus here, especially, insistently and urgently encouraging uh, this disciple and everyone to follow him without any break? without any hesitation, with the utmost urgency, even without saying goodbye to his family. You have to remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He was about to take his cross for us. And we need to see Jesus taking his cross before we take our own crosses. 
Without seeing Jesus' cross taking, we cannot take our own cross. Without seeing God's love for us first, we cannot have love for God and others. Here is very important. So here is this commitment to Christ. It cannot be a phase in life that we can just put behind and bring back anytime we want. That's not how it works. You know, Satan's uh, a common trick to uh, Christians who are committing to God is that Satan doesn't say no. He said, it's a great idea, but do it later. Do it later. That's always, you know, do it when it's more convenient or when do it when it's more effective. But God wants us to obey here and now. Seeing others obeying God, once again, sacrificially, it really inspires us and it you know, empowers us. And today's message, I want to conclude with a, the recent story of a, a martyr in Turkey. And his name is Jinuk Kim. And Jinuk Kim went to Turkey uh, area, uh, impoverished district of uh, uh, Diyarbakir in southeastern south Turkey, 60 miles from Syrian border, in 2016 with his wife and uh, uh, infant son. And, and he, he even took the uh, Turkish name Baris, which means peace in Turkish. And he was, uh, he, he was, uh, he was selling spices but actually he was a missionary. He was tent maker and he was telling about Jesus. He was not aggressive, but he was a clear. And there's a clear witness in everywhere made many people uncomfortable. And then one day last November, he went out to have a tea with a friend and then he was uh, stabbed to death by 16 years old. And the 16 years old later said that he trying to uh, steal his uh, uh, smartphone, uh, mobile phone, because, which is a very expensive uh, commodity, that area. But everybody knew this was not robbery. Theft was not the motive because he was stabbed twice in the chest. And when he fell, this boy stabbed in the back, more like a, you know, a short kill. And uh, Turkey is a moderate Islamic uh, republic. In their constitution, uh, they guarantee religious freedom and even allows a conversion. But lately, the Erdogan, the Turkish you know, prime minister president, is becoming, he's becoming dictator using the fundamentalistic uh, Islamic you know, support. So they are being a very, very aggressive against the Christians. And many times these Muslims uh, antagonists, they use the teenagers to attack Christians. And so Jinu Kim, who lived in Turkey for five years, he was just killed last November. And his wife had a girl a few days later, and she named him in Turkish, which means God's goodness. And then she wrote a letter to this boy. I do not understand why you did this, but I cannot be angry at you. Many people want the court to give you heavy punishment, but I and my husband don't want this. 
we pray that you become worthy of heaven because we believe in the worth of a people. God sent his son Jesus who forgave those who persecuted him. We also believe in that and we pray that you would also repent of your sin. So recently there was a, a memorial funeral ser memorial service where 180 uh, Christian Turks and the Koreans uh, gathered together and the Turkish local pastor said this, the history of a church is written in blood. And if we think these events are strange, we are alienated from the life of Christ. Guess who gave who, where I found this story? I found it in Christianity Today. Actually, I found that, uh, you know, a, uh, a month ago, I forgot about it. And then this week, Han texted me early in the morning, you know, texted me first thing in the morning when he found it. And uh, Han was saying that, Pastor Paul, that's the exact area that uh, uh, Vivian and I were thinking about uh, moving when our youngest uh, child, uh, Hannah, goes to college. So this is uh, really close to home. And all of a sudden, I realized the story is not just, this story is not an isolated story of uh, some heroic missionary. It can be a story of somebody that we all know well. So in conclusion, let me say this. Commitment to Christ cannot be based on emotional, idealistic decision. Commitment to Christ cannot be casual whenever you find the time kind of a way. Com commitment to Christ cannot be phase in life that you can put behind someday and the prep back. Christ seek us completely and fully. Now he called us seek him totally. Let's pray.